the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on the first 90 degree heat of the season which I understand is not only the uh, description of today, but tomorrow as well. There's a heat advisory in Portland. Highs expected to soar into the 90s both days. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. Seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering, and we're glad to have you with us. This hour, we're going to talk with Steve King. He's the author of Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. And in the 5 o'clock hour, I'm looking forward to a conversation um, with my guest, Maxine Fitzpatrick. She is a housing, real estate, and policy expert. She's the executive director of the Portland Community Reinvestment Initiative, doing significant work in helping uh, to provide affordable housing and associated services to families, uh, which also promotes stability, self-sufficiency, uh, and wealth creation. June is National Homeowner Month, and we'll tell you more about that, the work they're doing, and how you might uh, seek uh, their help as well. So that's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, as I mentioned, heat records uh, could fall today in Portland and the surrounding areas during the next couple of days. I'm not sure the high of today thus far, but today's record at PDX is 95 degrees. If we were there or just above it, we will have broken a record. Um, and that uh, could fall to high temperatures, possibly reaching 97. That's what we were told to expect as a possible high earlier in the day. The National Weather Service uh, issued a heat advisory in effect from noon to 9 p.m. Wednesday. So from midday today all the way through uh, tomorrow for hot temperatures and limited relief overnight. Peak heat for both days will be um, between 3 and 7. So we are there right now. Urban areas will be the hottest, according to the advisory. Temperatures will especially... um, a slow to cool will be slow to cool down on Tuesday night with a low in the mid 60s, not expected to arrive until 5 a.m. on Wednesday. So it's going to be hot through most of the evening. Um, Ports, Portland Parks and Recreation said its six interactive park fountains are already open. And those who are looking for beating the heat can find some relief there. Other areas are also expected to reach near record highs today and tomorrow. Uh, in the Longview Kelso area, highs are forecast to hit 88 degrees on Tuesday, 91 on Wednesday. Salem is expected to reach 95 both days, according to the National Weather Service. The heat should be short-lived, though. Thursday's expected high is in the mid-80s. The seven-day um, forecast shows temperatures dropping into the high 70s to low 80s starting Thursday through Father's Day over the weekend. So 96, 97 today and tomorrow, 83 in the Portland area on Thursday, 79 on Friday, 79 on Saturday, 77 Sunday and back to 78 on Monday. So just these couple of days. I know I'm going to be rushing home to try to make sure my plants aren't, um, you know, completely um, dehydrated by the end of this uh, this little hot spell. So I'll be standing with the hose for most of the evening, and I know other gardeners will be doing the same. 
Taking a look at the headlines, big tech and its practices will be under a bipartisan microscope. The House Judiciary Committee today launched an investigation into the market dominance of Silicon Valley's biggest names. It began with a look at the impact of the tech giant's platform on news content, the media and the spread of misinformation online. The House Judiciary Committee's investigation of tech market power stands out uh, because it's bipartisan and the first review by Congress of industry that's dominated uh, with generally little interference from federal regulators. So this is the beginning uh, with regulators at the Justice Department, the Federal Trade Commission, apparently pursuing antitrust investigations of Facebook, Google, Apple and Amazon and several state attorney states attorney general um, exploring bipartisan action of their own. The tech industry finds itself being increasingly accused of operating like monopolies. Representative uh, David Ciciline, uh led uh, the subcommittee today. The hearing vowed that the panel would broadly investigate the digital marketplace and the dominance of large technology platforms with an eye toward legislative action to increase competition. I'm not sure how Congress initiates competition, but nonetheless, that is a quote. And the helicopter pilot that was killed on Monday in a crash in the New York City area has been identified as a former volunteer fire chief and a dedicated, highly professional and extremely well-trained firefighter, as well as a skilled pilot. Tim McCormick died Monday after he made a crash landing on the roof of 787 7th Avenue in Midtown Manhattan at about 2 p.m., Rain and strong winds hammered the city at that time, the fire department of New York said. Investigators believe he was conducting executive travel, was headed to the home airport in Linden, New Jersey. The New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio uh, later told reporters that there appeared to be no connection to terrorism. The Federal Aviation Administration said the National Transportation Safety Board was in charge of the investigation, will determine probable cause of the incident. McCormick had been involved in a bird strike related emergency landing for a helicopter in 2014. And we're hearing that he didn't have the proper credentials to fly in the kind of challenging weather uh, that challenged that flight that ended his life. Meanwhile, the uh, as part of the ongoing multifaceted and broad review into potential misconduct by U.S. intelligence agencies during the 2016 presidential campaign, the Justice Department revealed on Monday it is also investigating the activities of several non-governmental organizations and individuals. In addition, the department announced that the probe led by Connecticut U.S. Attorney John Durham uh, was looking into the involvement of foreign intelligence services. The Department of Justice announcement came as the House Judiciary Committee chairman, uh, chairman Gerald Nadler announced today, or I should say on Monday, that he plans to hit pause on efforts to hold Attorney General William Barr in contempt after reaching a deal with Justice Department for access to evidence related to former special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia report. Separately, John Dean, the former White House counsel to Richard Nixon, testified on Monday that he sees remarkable parallels between Watergate and the findings of special counsel Robert Mueller's report at a dramatic Capitol Hill hearing that Republicans panned as a political show. And Kim Jong-un's half-brother was working as a CIA informant before he was brazenly murdered in a Malaysian airport in 2017. That according to a report today in the Wall Street Journal, Kim Jong-nam, the late North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un's uh, uh, eldest brother, 
met on several occasions with agency operatives, according to the Wall Street Journal. There was a nexus between Kim Jong-nam and the intelligence agency, according to the journal's source. Little else is known about what Kim Jong-un's older brother told the feds. However, the report did state he was almost certainly in contact with security services of other countries, particularly China, which might explain the motive behind uh, his killing, um, which has been uh, tagged back to his brother and operatives uh, that he used. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the headlines. Coming up later this hour, however, we'll talk with Steve King. He's a pastor and author of Beware of Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 18 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the White House announced on Monday that former Army Staff Sergeant David G. Belavia will become the first living Medal of Honor recipient for the war in Iraq for his heroism during the Second Battle of Fallujah in November of 2004. The president's going to present the award to Belavia at a White House ceremony on the 25th of this month. And Masterpiece Cake Shop is again under fire, now the subject of a third discrimination lawsuit alleged, uh, alleging the owner, Jack Phillips, discriminated against a customer by refusing to make a cake for an unspecified event. Well, the Supreme Court declined on Monday to take up a legal dispute targeting the inspection, or rather the inscription, of In God We Trust on coins and currency from the Department of the Treasury, reports the Washington Examiner. The challenge was brought by perennial anti-Christian atheist Michael Newdow, who also famously sued to have under God removed from the Pledge of Allegiance, as well as uh, to purge So Help Me God from presidential inauguration oaths. And Michigan Republican Representative Justin Amash announced on Monday evening he was leaving the influential conservative House Freedom Caucus just weeks after he attracted the ire of his colleagues by arguing in Twitter posts that the president had committed impeachable offenses. And the Justice Department has delivered to officials in the United Kingdom a formal extradition request for Julian Assange, making further U.S. charges against the WikiLeaks founder unlikely. Well, on this day in, oh, let's see, 1962, three prisoners at Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay stage an escape, leaving the island on a makeshift raft. They would never be found or heard from again. The mystery continues. And on this day in 1982, E.T., the extraterrestrial, is released. It would become one of the most beloved films of all time. On this day in 1985, Karen Ann Quinlan, the comatose patient whose case prompted a historic right-to-die court decision, dies in Morris Plains, New Jersey at the age of 31. On this day in 2009, with swine flu reported in more than 70 nations, the World Health Organization declares the first global flu pandemic in 41 years. And on this day in 2001, Timothy McVeigh is executed by injection, lethal injection, at the federal prison at Terre Haute, Indiana, for the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing that killed 168 people. And by the way, on this day in 1776, the Continental Congress forms a committee to draft a Declaration of Independence calling for freedom from Britain. 
Well, in a party line, 229 to 191 vote, House Democrats uh, today passed a civil enforcement resolution that effectively holds Attorney General William Barr and former White House counsel Don McGahn in contempt of Congress just a day after a key Democrat-led committee postponed its own contempt vote and said the Justice Department was cooperating with its investigation. Well, the whiplash of legislative action infuriated House Republicans who said Democrats were violating committee rules and that federal law and executive privilege prevented Barr and McGahn from turning over all the requested documents. The ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, Representative Doug Collins, accused his colleagues of seeking a redo of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation for cynical political gain. The Department of Justice, for its part, pushed back on the vote. A senior DOJ official said it was not a civil contempt vote, calling the terminology a Democratic talking point. President Trump didn't invoke executive privilege to shield any aspect of the Mueller report, but matters related to ongoing grand jury proceedings have been redacted pursuant to federal law, even from members of Congress. Mueller, in a rare public appearance before reporters, reporters rather, remarked, uh, in May, I certainly do not question the attorney general's good faith in deciding to make the report largely public. And although the resolution did not use the word contempt, it afforded similar civil powers to Democrats hoping to move uh, the move would bolster their legal case for accessing the documents. The resolution empowers House Democrats to use the services of the House counsel to take their subpoena fight uh, against Barr and McGahn to court and also gives Congressional Committee Chair the ability to unilaterally initiate judicial proceedings to enforce future subpoenas in federal court. Well, Watergate uh, figure John Dean who serves a, served rather as White House counsel for Richard Nixon, drew parallels on Monday between the scandal that led to his conviction and toppled his former boss and special counsel Robert Mueller's probe of alleged Russian government ties to the campaign of President Donald Trump. Now, Dean joined former Justice Department lawyers for a House Judiciary Committee hearing in what Chairman Jerry Nadler says was the first in a series examining the Mueller report. Now, this was not a witness of... Uh, of fact, he didn't have any knowledge of anything specific to the uh, the uh, Trump campaign, but was there apparently to relate his historic involvement in colluding um, with the Nixon administration to what um, he believes is happening under Trump. Well, some of the biggest moments from the House hearing, Dean, who is now 80, told the committee that the Mueller report is a roadmap for Congress, as was the grand jury report on Watergate that was transmitted to Congress. In both situations, he said the White House counsel was implicated in the cover-up act of, um, activity. Uh, Dean, who lost his uh, law license, went to prison for four months for his role in the Watergate cover-up, which he was directly involved in, said, while I was an active participant in the cover-up, up for a period of time. There is absolutely no information whatsoever that Trump White House counsel Don McGahn participated in any illegal or improper activity. To the contrary, there's evidence he prevented several obstruction attempts. Dean also talked about Trump uh, firing uh, Trump's firing in uh, May of 2017 of FBI Director James Comey uh, as saying that it echoed uh, Nixon's firing of Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox in an infamous Saturday night massacre in October of 73. Representative Gomert, a Republican out of Texas, also found similarities to Watergate stemming from the 2016 election, but he's uh, focused on FBI surveillance of the Trump campaign, saying there are similarities, you are right, with regard to Watergate, as you alluded to, Gomert uh, told Dean. In both, an administration was seeking to illegally spy on another candidate. In both, people were hired to gather 
other evidence that could be used against the candidate. Another um, moment to recall, Dean um, uh, Representative Matt Gates, a Republican from Florida, entered into the congressional record in a, a December 2005 essay by Dean titled George W. Bush as the new Richard Nixon, both wiretapped illegally and um, impeachably. Mr. Dean, how many American presidents have you accused of being Richard Nixon? Gates asked Dean. Dean responded, I actually wrote a book about Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney with the title Worse Than Watergate. Gates said, did you uh, make money on that book? Dean, it was a very successful book. Gates, how much money did you make on it? Dean, I'm sorry, I don't have any idea. Dean uh, also has been a contributor on CNN, frequently critical of Trump. Gates later asked, how much money do you make from CNN? Dean responded, I don't really know exactly. Nadler objected to the questioning and Gates defended um, the basis of asking the questions. I think the point uh, he attempted to make being clear. Another uh, moment to remember, the Mueller report includes 10 examples of possible obstruction by Trump, but neither accused nor exonerated the president of the offense. The examples included the Comey firing, pushing then Attorney General Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself from the Russia matter and uh, limit the scope of the probe and the president's consideration of firing Mueller, although consideration isn't an actual act. Unlike cases in which a subject engages in obstruction of justice to cover a crime, the report says the evidence we obtained did not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to Russian election interference. However, in testimony on Monday to the committee, Joyce White Vance, a former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, said an underlying crime isn't needed for an obstruction prosecution. Vance said she would indict Trump on related charges if uh, he were not president and is confident she would get a conviction that would survive an appeal. That's why obstruction does not require proof of an underlying crime, she said. Uh, The law says so, and logic tells us the same thing. And an underlying crime were required to obtain an obstruction if it were uh, necessary to obtain an obstruction conviction. Then the most successful obstructioner, the ones who did the best job of concealing their crimes from uh, investigators, would get off with no charges at all. And finally, Representative Doug Collins, a Republican out of Georgia, ranking member of the committee, referred to something then-President Barack Obama said in a 2012 debate with Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney, but turning the phrase for the hearing. Obama said at the time, Governor Romney, a few months ago when you were asked What is the biggest geopolitical group facing America? You said Russia, not Al-Qaeda. You said Russia. And the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because the Cold War has been over for 20 years. Collins then focused on Dean's appearance and his Watergate notoriety, recalling the moment. It was brought up when one of our candidates talked about Russia being a threat and former President Obama said the 80s are asking for their foreign policy back. Collins said, well, guess what? This committee is now hearing from the 70s and they want their star witness back. Collins asked for the committee to focus on real priorities. Why can't Democrats finally focus on the real threat, he said, Russian interference in American elections? Just a few of the highlights from that contentious hearing yesterday. And Justice Department officials are pushing back on the suggestion that a recently struck deal with the House Judiciary Committee chairman, Gerald uh, Nadler, will give Democrats unfettered access to documents pertaining to former special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe. A source familiar with the negotiation says that while the agreement with Nadler would allow members of his committee to review certain underlying evidence associated with the report, He's not going to get access to whatever documents he wants. This is not a blank check. 
They can't just see whatever they want, the source said. Uh, They have to tell us what they want to see, and then we will consider that legitimate request. This is just the start of a process. The source said that when Nadler requests a document, the White House will have the ability to review the files to see if any White House um, equities are implicated. Uh, At that point, President Trump would have the opportunity to assert executive uh, privilege in a bid to protect them from release. So even in the back and forth with the House Judiciary Committee, things are not yet resolved. Now, coming up next, we're going to talk about uh, leadership, uh, particularly those who are involved in leadership in the church. Steve King is a former, is a current pastor and the author of Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. We'll uh, talk with him in just a few moments. Also in the five o'clock hour, I want to remind you that Maxine Fitzpatrick, who is executive director of the Portland Community Reinvestment Initiative, um, is a uh, housing re- uh, expert, a real estate and policy expert. We're going to talk about uh, the fact that this month, June, is National Homeowner Month and how this organization is helping to connect um, would-be homeowners with homes. We'll get into that in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that it's every minister and every ministry leader's greatest desire to live a life that honors God, to have a family that's strong, and to draw uh, those to whom they are, are called to serve, to lead them to a relationship with Christ. But behind well-intentioned efforts and carefully prepared sermons, leaders can often carry fears of failure, hurts, and hidden sins that can devastate those they love and capsize those they they lead. It is a precarious position, but there is good news. He says that God stands ready to empower those he has called to boldly plug the leaks in their lives, vigorously flourish, and confidently finish. His book, Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. Isn't that what every leader wants? Well, Pastor Steve King draws on 40 years of ministry to help Christians build healthy, gospel-centered habits now so that they don't have to bail their spiritual ship later. With biblical wisdom, with personal stories, spiritual care. He equips ministry leaders, his readers, with eight proactive strategies to stand strong. Steve King has served as the senior pastor of Cherrydale Baptist Church in Arlington, Virginia, since 1983, now serving his fourth decade of ministry. He has a passion to make disciples who love God and people above all else. He served on the board of Pioneers International for 29 years as part of the leadership team of One Heart DC and has hosted the Renewing Hope Radio program on WAVA 105.1 Washington, D.C. for some 26 years. He and his wife, Maybell, have been married for 45 years. They have a couple of sons and a granddaughter. And he joins us today by phone to talk about his uh, very important book for leaders who not only want to start strong, but want to finish well. Beware of the slow leaks. Eight ways ministry leaders can thrive and finish strong. Pastor Steve King, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good day to you. You too. You know, I mentioned all the numbers in your life because it gives you credibility. You're not a pastor who's been uh, on the job for 15 minutes. You've you've actually lived through several seasons. And looking back and watching others who perhaps started at the same time you did, 
uh, some who finished well or are finishing well and others maybe not so much. You have the benefit of experience uh, that gives credibility to your words and uh, warnings and advice to others who are engaged in ministry. So I appreciate your taking the time to share what you have learned uh, with others so that they too can finish strong. Thank you so much. Now, let me ask you, for those listening who are in the early stages of ministry, perhaps they've just begun, it's a bit difficult to imagine finishing strong when you're just getting started. How important is it to have this perspective in the beginning, in the middle, and as you're anticipating and approaching the end? I think it's extremely important, and there's some basic essentials, especially starting out as a ministry leader, to put into your life. And as a matter of fact, chapter one, I learned right there in Portland, Oregon, when I began seminary at Western Seminary, actually before I began, I learned the most important lesson that has carried me 42 years in ministry. I moved to Portland with my new bride, Maybell. We've now celebrated 46 years together. And I was assigned an upperclassman as a big brother. His name was Tom Heflin. And I called Tom. We chatted for a while, planned to meet. And then Tom said, Steve, did you hear what happened to me? And I said, uh, no, Tom, I just got to town. And he said, well, I work in a warehouse with other seminarians. It was Friday evening. We were cleaning up. I was in the back of the warehouse. The other guys were in the front. They didn't know I was there. And I had my right arm up in a machine cleaning it, and they flipped a switch, and it cut off my right arm at the shoulder. Mm. I just got out of the hospital. Steve, isn't God good? And I said, whoa, what did you... He went over the story again and ended almost like a creed. Isn't God good? Now, I was thinking either he's giving me platitudes, he's in shock, or maybe he knows God in a way I don't know him. So I watched Tom Heflin for four years, and he was not giving me platitudes. It was the core of his life. And here's the first lesson I learned before I started seminary. There are only two ways to live. One, you filter your life circumstances, good and bad, cut off arms or whatever, through the character and the promises of God. Or you filter God through the circumstances of life, and you'll lose heart. So the first principle for starting out in ministry and staying in it and leading well is to have your filter in place every single day and cultivate the habit of filtering life through the character and the promises of God revealed in Christ. You write that filter two leaders are arrogant before God and people. Uh, They daily feed their unbelief by filtering God through the circumstances of life. They carry the extra weight that always comes with unbelief, stress, worry, anxiety, and frustration. They may appear to flourish in the short term, but the slow leak of unbelief eventually erode their character, so they neither flourish nor finish well. So this is a... like a balloon, that that release of air over time will reveal itself if you're not a leader that filters life through the character and promise of God. Yes, yes. That's lesson number one. It's a daily thing. And in the book, I share several tools that can, in a very practical way, mm-hmm. help you get a strong filter in place. Now let's let's just park there for a moment. What are some of the things that one can do? Because it's so tempting 
to filter God through the circumstances of life. It would have been very easy for your mentor to say, clearly, I'm not called to ministry because I'm no longer functioning with two arms, and therefore I need to think about life differently because of what's happened. Uh, What are some of the ways that those who are called to leadership can consistently, and particularly in the beginning and throughout, filter life through the character and promise of God? Here's a principle, and it's in the book. It's a tool that's helped me immensely in a personal way, and those I've shared with said it helps too. My problems begin the second I wake up. And my (laughs) greatest enemy, I look at him in the mirror. It's me. And so I'm a a guy that loves to hit the ground running, a lot of activity, and my brain starts firing when I wake up. And I realize I need to put a discipline in my life so I can get my filter in place. So for over 25 years, I've been doing this, and God's honored it. I call it the fourfold praise. The second I wake up, before I get out of bed, I make myself the first thought, praise God for who he is. And I think of his attributes and praise him. Second, I praise God for who I am in Christ. And I review my identity in Christ. Third, I review the job description of the Holy Spirit. He's responsible for 20 things. I review those and yield to the Holy Spirit and then put on the armor of God. Hmm. Then I can get up and begin to read the word or go about my day, but that softens my heart. It gets a filter in place. It gives me a perspective. So that's just one tool, but finding ways to feed that so that you have a strong automatic response, filter life through the character and promises of God. Well, that's one tool, but it is an incredible tool. Another thing that you suggest for leaders who want to finish strong is to be shaped by the gospel. Uh, And it's related uh, very closely to the first, but talk about what it means to be shaped by the gospel in the context of leadership. I used to believe that the gospel was used to help people get into the kingdom, and you kind of put it on the shelf until you shared your faith with someone. And I was wrong. And over the years, I've learned that the gospel doesn't just get you into the kingdom. It's how you live Mm -hmm. every single day. And the discovery of every ethical and moral command given to the believer is rooted in and shaped by the gospel. So making that central, making it shape your perspective every day, so it's a growing process, excuse me, and doing that in the context of other people and the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's the essence of being shaped by the gospel. We're going to continue our conversation, but need to take a quick break. Uh, You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we are talking about the book, Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. Uh, This is just, these are just two of the principles that are included in the book, and we'll get through as many of them as we possibly can. But it's a great way to consider at whatever stage of ministry you're in, what kinds of things need to be in place in order to finish well, to finish strong, and to thrive during the years of ministry. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Steve King. He served as a senior pastor in Cherrydale Baptist Church in Arlington, Virginia since 1983 and is now entering his 
fourth decade of ministry. Uh, His book is titled Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Well. And it's such an important book at a time when discouragement plagues so many who are called to ministry. The book um, offers biblical wisdom, practical stories, spiritual care, and Pastor King equips ministry leaders with eight proactive strategies to stand strong. We've talked about a couple of them, checking your filter, being shaped by the gospel. The third in the uh, lineup is aligning your life. Now, it may seem, well, this is such an obvious thing because of Of course, a pastor would align his life with what uh, Scripture teaches. But why is it important? Explain why, and having, you know, had the book, explain why it's important to state the obvious so that it's not just lost as um, something that is uh, taken taken for granted and perhaps even forgotten. Yes. Aligning your life in the specific area where we absolutely know God is working. And one area we know for sure is the local church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, what does that mean? There's a growing movement of church planters, entrepreneurial leaders, great things like that are happening. You can read many of those books, which I have hundreds over the years. What's often missing is the church is never defined. I served on a mission board for 20-something years. Six years ago, we realized that nowhere in all of our documents did we actually define what a local church is. And we did that, and it changed how we operated. So this is about aligning your life with the biblical, healthy, local church. That's what will help you. So a parable. Back here in Washington, D.C., Where I live, you can go to the most popular museum, the Air and Space Museum, go up to the second floor, and you'll see a story of a great astronomer, Sir Percival Lowell. In the late 1800s, he was one of the world's most famous astronomers. He founded Lowell's Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. He wrote several books and lectured on Mars, and he believed There was evidence for life on planet Mars. The primary evidence was the series of canals he traced as he studied Mars. Now, Lowell is gone. We have sent space probes to Mars. We've mapped it. No one ever found any canals. So what was Lowell looking at? We now know he had a rare eye disease called Lowell syndrome. He was tracing the veins of his own eyeballs. Hmm. Many pastors and church leaders can be so busy living off of their assumption, tracing the veins of their own kingdoms. What they need is a revelation from God, just as Lowell did the truth about Mars. We need the truth about the local church. When we find it in scripture, it's crystal clear, and you align your life with it. That's one of the keys to finishing strong and thriving along the way. Mm. Another of the uh, proactive strategies you write about is letting the grace of God instruct you. Now, if you are a follower of of Christ, if you have trusted in him, then you have experienced the grace of God. What does it mean to let the grace of God instruct you? We all know about grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, unmerited favor. You're justified by faith alone. Titus stresses, and many other places, especially the book of Hebrews, that the mark of a healthy leader is he's letting that grace instruct you. Titus says, 
it instructs you to deny ungodliness and to live soberly, righteously, live a healthy life. Hebrews gives you five warning passages. I believe they're all aimed at a believer who begins to drift. And it's teaching you what it's like to be instructed by the grace of God or to resist it. The first stage is you begin to drift. You just slowly begin to lay back on the disciplines. And if you don't repent, you always go to the next level. You're deceived. You start believing lies. And if you don't repent, you go to the next level. You'll become dull of hearing. And if you don't repent, you'll go to the next level. There'll be areas in your life where you're defiant and you say, God, hands off. And that always leads to the last one. You're defiled and severely disciplined. God's grace will not leave us alone, and we're instructed by it if we actively repent and yield to Christ, or we taste the hard side of it where God takes us through the five stages. The fifth of the, um, uh, the the practical, the proactive strategies is keeping the home fires burning. It's not uncommon to hear stories of dynamic leaders, whether they're pastors or church leaders in some other way, uh, having a, a successful ministry, but things at home are not going well. What does it mean to keep the home fires burning when you're called to leadership in ministry? I believe this is one of the core essentials. You see it in Titus and Timothy. If you're going to be an effective leader that's thriving, your home life and your marriage needs to be strong. Maybell and I just celebrated 46 years last Sunday, and I have another parable from the state of Oregon, (laughs) Depot Bay on the coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right before I left Oregon, I took my son to Depot Bay. There's a sign there that says the world's smallest harbor, and we caught uh, salmon, we chased whales, we were coming back in at the end of the day, a storm began to blow in, the captain of the boat called us to the front and he said, look, look at the narrow entrance, it's rocks on each side, there's a cross current, there was a crash boat there, and he said, the only way we'll make it in safely is if I line this up with three buoys in the water so it looks like one buoy, and we obviously made it. Here's the point. Lots of folks want to enter the harbor of marital intimacy, but they crash. If you line your life up with three buoys, three wise decisions, you will enter the harbor of marital intimacy. So we talk about what those three decisions are, God's definition of marriage, and some core essentials to keep your marriage fresh and strong. Again, we're talking about the book, Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. Uh, Another um, proactive strategy you write about in Beware the Slow Leaks is determining your leadership path. And that, I would imagine, requires intention and a a, a focused hearing and listening to what God is saying. How do you determine your leadership path and then remain faithful to it? One of the first and most important lessons I learned about leadership, spiritual leadership, was in Portland before I took my first church, which was a growth accelerator, an opportunity to trust the Lord church. And I was meeting with a wise seasoned pastor and kind of pouring out my woes. And he took me to the scripture and he had me read two verses out loud. And the first one was Hebrews 7.25. And it told me that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Mm. 
And he took me to Revelation chapter 12, and he pointed out where Satan is the accuser of the brethren and accuses them before God day and night. And he said, you know, I've been listening to you, so I've got one question for you. When you think of the flock that's been entrusted to you, who do you align with most, the intercessor or the accuser? And that pierced my heart and brought me to repentance, and I determined I want to join Jesus in being an intercessor, not an accuser. That began to shape my leadership. Then you can study the leadership path of Jesus, contrast it with Herod, and there's a stark contrast between the two in the Gospel of Mark. And once you look at those traits and those core concepts, you make a decision every day, which path will I choose, the way of Herod? of the way of Christ. Mm. We're talking about the book, Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. Time will not permit us to uh, review the last two, walking with a band of brothers rather than walking in isolation and keeping heart in times of trouble. Our listeners will just have to get the book and read it to learn the practical uh, information that you provide there. But let me ask you what you hope your readers will take away from Beware the Slow Leaks as they anticipate a successful season of ministry that finishes strong? Full of hope, hope that you can finish strong year after year after year, and uh, a paradigm that you can build in your heart and life and feed. Uh, We are told in Hebrews to fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author, and he's the perfecter of our faith. We're not the author. We're not the perfecter. We're to fix our eyes on Christ. So these eight principles really boil down to how to fix your eyes on Christ so that you can finish strong. Amen. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too. God bless you. You, too. Again, Steve King is the author. Beware the Slow Leaks. The book is published by Salem Books. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. This hour, we're going to talk with a housing, real estate, and policy expert, Maxine Fitzpatrick. She is executive director of the Portland Community Reinvestment Initiative. She'll be joining us at the bottom of the hour. Um, the organization has a vision to provide affordable housing and associated services to achieve family stability, self-sufficiency, and uh, resident wealth creation. June is National Homeowner Month, and we'll talk about uh, what they're doing to make home ownership uh, a reality for families here in our community. Again, Maxine Fitzpatrick will join us at the bottom of the five o'clock hour. Well, the acting Homeland Security Secretary gave lawmakers a glimpse today into just how many asylum seekers skip their hearings after being released into the United States, telling a Senate panel that a recent program found 90% missed their court dates. 90%. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham asked Acting Secretary Kevin McLeanan um, how many asylum seekers coming across the southern border show up for their hearings. It depends on demographic, he said, the court, uh, uh, but we see too many cases where people are not showing up, telling Graham that DHS recently conducted a pilot program with family units. Out of those 7,000 cases, 90 uh, received final orders of removal in absentia, 90%. 90% did not show up, Graham asked. Correct. That is a recent sample from families crossing the border. McLean and 
uh, clarified. Well, his testimony also painted a grim portrait of a border crisis that shows no signs of easing with Border Patrol overwhelmed and underfunded. The secretary described authorities as hamstrung by laws that limit how long they can keep migrants in custody. Currently, due to a single district court order, we cannot obtain effective immigration enforcement results for the families arriving at our border. They cannot be held for longer than 21 days and do not receive rulings from immigration courts for years. U.S. Customs and Border Protection reported that it encountered 144,000 migrants at the border in May alone, a level not seen in decades, describing the situation as a full-blown emergency. Uh, He said uh, that 60,000 children have entered into DHS custody in just the last 40 days. Uh, He told lawmakers they also suffer due to misaligned asylum standards, meaning many of those who demonstrate credible fear of returning home, the initial bar for claiming asylum, are later judged not to have a valid asylum claim. He also said the restrictions on how long family units can be held meant that a child is now seen as a passport to the U.S., a perception he said is based in reality. He testified that only 30 percent of those coming to the border are actually trying to avoid being captured. Unless you're a single adult, it's very unlikely you'll be uh, repatriated. McLean um, urged Congress to act to end those loopholes and to grant requested DHS funding and suggested that moves to make asylum seekers claim asylum in their home countries or designated third countries could help solve the crisis. Now, that is part of what the negotiated deal with uh, the Trump administration and Mexico is attempting to do. How successful that will be remains to be seen. Um, But again, Congress has refused up to this point, to do anything constructive to address this crisis, primarily because it's too useful uh, politically uh, to actually resolve. In other news, executives from more than 180 companies published a full-page ad of a letter yesterday in the New York Times that conveys the myth that restricting abortion is bad for business. The letter is part of the Don't Ban Equality campaign, which was initiated by a coalition of the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, and NARAL, Pro-Choice America. The executive signed the letter, which states strict abortion laws are against our values and impairs our ability to build diverse and inclusive workforce pipelines, recruit top talent across the states, and protect the well-being of all the people who keep our business thriving day in and day out. So abortion is necessary to accomplish all of that. Ending the life of a developing human in utero is necessary for all of that. It sounds a little utilitarian to me, but... That's just me. Among the list of the ad's endorsers are chief executives from technology, fashion, banking, retail, and energy companies, including Yelp, Slack, Tinder, H&M, Twitter, and Square Inc., Uh, These CEOs that state protecting unborn life is against our values are responding to states that have recently passed heartbeat laws that prohibit abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detectable in the womb. These states include Missouri, Mississippi, Kentucky and Louisiana, Ohio and Alabama. Governor Brian Kemp also recently signed a heartbeat bill that will replace current Georgia law that allows abortions up to 20 weeks. Governor Kemp specifically called the law common sense despite recent boycott threats from Hollywood actors and three of the world's biggest entertainment companies, Netflix, Disney and Warner Media. The battle continues. Meanwhile, a hotel in Michigan is offering free stays and transportation for women traveling to the state to have an abortion. The Yale Hotel announced the offer in a Facebook post last month in response to a flood of legislation restricting access to the procedure in conservative states, including Georgia, Ohio, Missouri and Alabama. Dear sisters that live in Alabama, Ohio, Georgia, 
Arkansas, Missouri, or any other states that follow with similar laws restricting access. We cannot do anything about the way you are being treated in your home state, hotel manager Shelley O'Brien wrote. But if you can make it to Michigan, we will support you with several nights lodging and transportation to and from your appointment. Um, as the post gained traction online, the manager said she was contacted by a number of people offering to drive women in need to up to Yale, a largely conservative town to less than uh, of less than 2000 people, about 67 miles north of Detroit. We got some um, amazing people in our village, uh, she says, referring to those who would be willing to provide transportation. And according to the Vermont Right to Life Committee and VT Digger, Vermont Governor Phil Scott has signed H. 57 into law. There are currently no restrictions on abortion in the state, and this bill will ensure that abortion on demand remains legal in Vermont through all nine months of pregnancy. By putting his signature on H-57, Governor Phil Scott endorses unlimited, unregulated abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy, says Mary Hahn Beerworth, executive director of the Vermont Right to Life. His signature signals his preference for protecting the business of abortion over uh, life-affirming options in Vermont statute. Well, according to Sharon Toborg, policy analyst for Vermont Right to Life, H-57 goes beyond Roe versus Wade and may well be the most radical anti-life law in the nation. H-57 grants abortion providers and clinics the right to sue the state if they are not allowed to establish a new abortion practice in Vermont. Unlike providers of other medical procedures, H-57 grants abortion providers this private right of action against the state. The Vermont governor has said he will uh, allow abortion bill 57 uh, to pass into law. The bill was recently approved um, in both the House and the Senate, and the governor can either sign the law or leave it to pass without his signature. The bill seeks to make abortion a right in the state where there are already no restrictions at any time for any reason. A woman in Vermont can undergo an elective abortion at nine months, and this bill intends to keep it that way. Perhaps the most um, liberal law Uh, for abortion in the country. Meanwhile, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop, which won a case before the U.S. Supreme Court recently, was sued for a third time this week. Jack Phillips, the Lakewood, Colorado baker owner, or rather bakery owner, who has refused to bake cakes that violate his Christian faith, is being sued again by Autumn Scardina, a transgender woman, for refusing to bake a gender transition cake. We'll tell you more about that after the break. In just a moment, this once again begs the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to finally resolve this issue of whether or not the First Amendment protects the free exercise of religion under these circumstances. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Also anticipating a conversation with Maxine Fitzpatrick. She is a housing, real estate, and policy expert and executive director of Portland Community Reinvestment Initiative. Their vision is to provide affordable housing and associated services that achieve family stability, self-sufficiency, and residential uh, wealth creation. We're going to talk about uh, June being National Homeowner Month and the work that they are doing to make that possible uh, for um, the families here in our community. Well, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop that won the case before the U.S. Supreme Court recently, not on the merits of the case, but on whether or not the 
um, they were discriminated against by the or the um, commission in Colorado that uh, ruled against the uh, Masterpiece Cape Shop owner, Jack Phillips. But anyway, um, Jack Phillips has been sued for a third time this week. The Lakewood, Colorado bakery owner who has refused to bake cakes to violate his uh, Christian faith is being sued again by Autumn Scardina, a transgender woman, for refusing to bake a gender transition cake. Scardina claims it is a textbook discrimination case. Phillips said she's uh, rehashing old claims that hold no merit. The Supreme Court ultimately will, uh, I suppose, have to make that uh, clarification. But Phillips describes himself as an artist who uses cake as uh, cakes as canvas to express ideas and celebrate events. He's insisted he doesn't want to do something that goes against his faith. He said the case uh, against him has, uh, and all of them, have directly affected his family and business, and he's faced death threats and harassment. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of Phillips last year, sort of, in a case where he refused to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, not the individuals, but for the event. The high court ruled the Colorado Civil Rights Commission showed anti-religious bias when it filed a discrimination charge against Phillips. And there was sufficient evidence in that case to say that, yeah, there was um, evidence of that. The commission then filed another complaint against him after he refused to make uh, Scardina a cake celebrating the gender transition. He, in turn, sued the state, claiming he was being singled out for his religious beliefs. The commission and Phillips agreed to, do- uh, to drop that case in March after uh, discovery showed anti-religious hostility from the state toward the family-run baker. Scardina decided to pursue separate litigation as an individual, which attorneys filed uh, Wednesday in district court. Well, the dignity of all citizens in our state needs to be honored. Masterpiece Cake Shop said before the Supreme Court they would serve any baked good to members of the community. It are the LGBTQ community. It was just the religious significance of it being a wedding cake. Uh, one of the attorneys representing Car- Scardina told the local CBS station, we don't believe uh, they've been honest with the public. Well, Scardina claims that Phillips violated the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act and Consumer Protection Act for refusing to bake a birthday cake celebrating the plaintiff's gender transition. So it wasn't a physical, this is the day I was born, but the day that the new gender is being bo- uh, identified as uh, a birth date, which was to be blue on the inside, pink on the, um, blue on the outside, pink on the inside, symbolizing the transition from male to female. Now, Jen Campbell, senior uh, counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, has represented Phillips in the other cases, called it further harassment, rehashing old claims, although this is by an individual and not by the state's commission. Uh, he went on to say this uh, latest attack by Scardina looks like yet another desperate attempt to harass the cake artist, and it stumbles over the one detail that matters most. Jack serves everyone. He just cannot express all messages through his custom cakes. Again, the Supreme Court will ultimately have to resolve this issue uh, like it or not, they kicked the can down the road uh, last time around, but uh, there are too many instances in which these unresolved questions uh, need a final resolution. So we'll follow the story as it develops. In other news, the Supreme Court rejected an atheist case on Monday to remove In God We Trust, the national motto from all coins and currency from the Department of the Treasury. Michael Newdow, a name that's probably familiar if you're following these stories, the same activist attorney who tried to remove under God from the Pledge of Allegiance, lost his case, arguing Congress's mandate to inscribe in God we trust on currency was a government endorsement of religion and a violation of the First Amendment. Newdow argued in his petition to the Supreme Court that because his clients were all atheist individuals or atheist groups, the government violated their sincere religious belief, although the absence of faith 
is not a religious belief. Nonetheless, their religious belief that there is no God and turned them into political outsiders by placing the phrase, in God we trust on our money. While the justices rejected his petition without comment, the phrase was first put on an American coin in 1864 due to an increased religious sentiment. It was added to both coins and paper bills in 55. Newdow also tried to silence prayer and any religious reference at the inauguration of President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama unsuccessfully. Now, I will say that uh, I, I question whether or not if we as a culture uh, have rejected the notion that we trust in God, if it's hypocrisy to, to maintain it on documents, in pledges, and uh, on coins, but that's another uh, matter and not the question that was being raised by Mr. Newdow. And finally, Kim Yong-nam, the uh, slain half-brother of North Korea's, uh, North Korea's leader, was a Central Intelligence Agency source who met on several occasions with agency operatives, a person knowledgeable about the matter said. Now, you might recall that Uh, Kim Jong-un's brother, Kim Jong-nam, was killed in 2017. There was an attack in Malaysia, and uh, it it was uh, somewhat puzzling as to why Kim Jong-un would have ordered his brother's death. It wasn't altogether surprising because he can be rather um, cavalier about ordering those kinds of deaths with those who are close to him as well as rank-and-file citizens of North Korea. But there was a nexus between the U.S. spy agency and Mr. Kim, this unidentified person says. Mr. Kim, the half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, was killed in Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia in February of 2017 when two women smeared his face with a ner- face rather with a nerve agent VX. U.S. and South Korean officials have blamed the attack on North Korea, which it denies. Well, some of the details of Mr. Kim's relationship with the CIA remain unclear. Several former U.S. officials said the half-brother, who had lived outside of North Korea for many years and had no known power base in Pyongyang, was unlikely to be able to provide any details of the secretive country's inner workings. They also said Mr. Kim, who resided mainly in the Chinese enclave of Macau, uh, was almost certainly in contact with security services in other countries, particularly China's. The CIA declined to comment. Chinese officials didn't respond to a request for comment either. The fact that the CIA held meetings with the North Korean leader's exiled half-brother illustrates the lengths U.S. intelligence will go to gather information about um, the hermit, uh, hermit country uh, to begin with, there's been speculation among former U.S. officials and analysts that outside countries, including China, saw Kim Jong-nam as a possible successor to Kim Jong-un should the latter's rule be in danger. But U.S. intelligence agencies concluded that Kim Jong-nam was ill-suited to fill such a role. Several former uh, officials from the United States also confirmed. But it does provide perhaps some insight into why his death was um, ordered if, in fact, that was the case. Well, news of the CIA's relationship with Kim Jong-nam comes as nuclear diplomacy between the U.S. and North Korea is at a standstill following a February summit in Hanoi between Kim Jong-un and President Trump that ended without an agreement. A hazardous materials team conducted um, uh, checks in Kuala Lumpur at the time of Mr. Nam's um, uh, death and it was uh, difficult to establish who ordered the uh, killing, but the airport did have evidence of what happened um, at the time of his death. Well, U.S. intelligence officials at first felt relief that the CIA's interaction with Mr. Kim wasn't exposed in the immediate aftermath of his killing. 
The person knowledgeable about the situation said, but three months after his death in May of 2017, the Japanese newspaper reported that while in Malaysia, Kim Yong-nam met with a Korean-American who Malaysian officials suspected was a U.S. intelligence officer. Mr. Kim's role as a CIA source also is described in a book about Kim Jong-un, the, the great successor written by a Washington Post reporter and due to be published uh, well, today, in fact, according to news reports citing excerpts of the book, the Wall Street Journal hasn't um, uh, seen a copy of the book. But Mr. Kim traveled to Malaysia in February of 17 to meet his CIA contact, although that may not have been the sole purpose of the trip. The person knowledgeable about the matter has said I'm always reluctant to say the person knowledgeable without any identification. But this was published in several um, <clears throat> tabloids, including The Washington Uh, The Wall Street Journal, rather. So who knows? Well, Saturday's planned hashtag impeach Trump day of action has expanded greatly in the past week with over 100 events now set around the nation to call for House impeachment hearings against the president. Organizers said that the number of events grew from 75 last week to 133 today. Several groups were involved, including Indivisible, Move On by the People and nearly 20 others. Some of the events will be simple protests. Others will include the reading of pro-impeachment speeches from Democrats, including Senator Elizabeth Warren and Minnesota Representative Rashida Tlaib. Um, House Democratic leaders have skirted direct talk about impeachment, angering the progressive left. And the protests are aimed to give the public greater voice in the process, according to organizers. But that's uh, coming up this weekend. There are also some pride events this weekend. So. Uh, a lot apparently is scheduled for the weekend. You might want to see what's going on in your community um, if you'd like to avoid clashing with those events. All right, we're going to take a break here. And uh, when we return, looking forward to a conversation with Maxine Fitzpatrick. She's making an impact on our community, connecting home or homes rather with would-be homeowners right here in the Portland metro area. That's coming up next right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may not know it, but June is National Home Ownership Month. And joining us to talk about uh, that fact and the work that's being done by the Portland Community Reinvestment Initiatives, Inc., is Maxine Fitz- Fitzpatrick, who is its executive director. A community development corporation that specializes in the development and management of affordable housing here in the city of Portland. It was formed in 1992 to acquire units uh, owned by Dominion Capital, which was a fraudulent investor broker that preyed primarily on African-American families who were being denied conventional financing by local uh, lenders due to um, redlining. There's a whole history and story about which uh, Portland is notorious. We won't get into all of that, but I do want to let you know a little bit about the solution that is currently available here in the city of Portland and the work um, that this organization is doing to connect people with housing, which, of course, means um, affordable housing and associated services means that families find stability, self-sufficiency and the, uh, the capacity to create wealth. So, Maxine Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for joining us. It is an honor to have you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Well, let's talk about Portland Community Reinvestment Initiatives. You all are doing some significant work in our community. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I believe we are, too. Actually, uh, Portland Community Reinvestment Initiatives, commonly known as PCRI, we've been around since 1992, mm-hmm. 
And for the most part in our initial years, we were involved in the stabilization of Northeast, uh, primarily North and Northeast Portland. And as you can see now, those initial efforts have paid off quite nicely. Uh, too much, as a matter of fact, since it has led to the displacement of long-term residents. But yes, we currently own 800 plus units of affordable housing, primarily single-family scattered sites. Um, that was acquired with the initial portfolio. And then in 2006, we acquired a portfolio that had been owned by another community development corporation, and that bought a number of units that we currently own, rental units anyway, that we currently own and manage up to 800. And currently, uh, recently, we finished up another development, which is the Beaches Park Apartments. Yes. And um, that's 80 units and currently under construction. We have King plus Parks Apartments, which is going to be 70 units when it's completed. The name is derived from the fact that it's situated on the corners of Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and Rosa Parks Way. So those are going to be 70 affordable apartments uh, with one, two, and three-bedroom uh, apartments in the building. Now, it's long been understood that in the Portland metro area, there's been something of a housing crisis. But I want to emphasize the displaced uh, members of the North Northeast uh, community, because that has been an, a, an ongoing issue here in this community for a number of years. And part of your emphasis is helping communities of color um, establish housing in the communities from which uh, they, they have uh, come uh, in order to address some of those or redress some of those disparities. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yes, North and Northeast Portland is known for its concentration primarily of African Americans. This is These are the neighborhoods that they live in. Actually, PCRI has housing in 32 of Portland's 95 uh, neighborhoods, and they're primarily focused in North and Northeast Portland. Um, and yes, we have, uh, in 2000, the city of Portland established the Interstate Urban Renewal Area. And with the establishment of that district, it led to the extensive displacement of long-term indigenous uh, residents who are primarily black residents. And we're addressing displacement in those neighborhoods. However, it does impact more than just black mm -hmm. residents. This was the area that was known for the most affordable housing in the city. Yeah. And that is absolutely no longer the case, which is what led to the massive displacement. During the period of 2000 to 2010, it was 10,000 people displaced out of these neighborhoods. And then by 2016-17, it had added another 7,000 so it has been extensive displacement in these neighborhoods. Housing prices have skyrocketed. Homes that were um, not desired at one time were significantly hot on the market today. Now, this is um, National Home Ownership Month. Talk a little bit about yes. the difference um, owning a home can make in the life of a community as well in the life of a family in helping to build wealth and uh, help to establish uh, families, particularly low income. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we understand that home ownership is that one 
single asset that can create uh, generational wealth in a family. Um, the real estate accrues in value, and then that value, if you live in that home 25, 35, 40 years, and some even longer than that, what it was valued at when you initially purchased it compared to what it mm-hmm. is valued at 40 years later is significantly higher. And that's generally what a family would use to educate children, to um, start a small business, or just leave for the next generation. And so without that opportunity, then what we have is just a significant number of just renter households. And renter households are the ones that was displaced in North and Northeast Portland. There were a few families who sold their homes because uh, the price in, in the and the sales price of that home was just more than they could have imagined that it was ever worth. And so some of them did. Kind of short-sighted, but that's okay. It was their home. They could do what they wanted to. And so when you don't have that opportunity, then what you live through is um, poverty, and there's no avenue by which you can alleviate that condition in your family if you don't own real estate and you're not uh, employed in a position or you're not unable to educate your children, unable to start a small business uh, and, and just pass your assets on to the next generation. So what we were experiencing here in Portland, but not only in Portland nationally, we were experiencing generational poverty in a way that we haven't seen since the late 40s. Um, and it's it's really bad in some areas, uh, more so than others. But when we listen and hear about Brooklyn, New York, uh, gentrifying and all the displacement that happened there, when we hear about Oakland, California, once you know known as one of the worst places you can live, and look at what's happened there now. But that's just a couple of the cities that are going through this. And PCRI is focused on homeownership. Now, for those who are interested in in taking full advantage of uh, June as National Homeownership Month, might not have any idea how do you how do you qualify? How do you get started? How can um, uh, PCRI help uh, potential homeowners, people who are interested but might not uh, typically consider themselves qualified? How might you help them to make that uh, make that gain? The first thing we do is we assess whether or not that's a reality. Mm-hmm. And let's just say, for instance, that it is. They don't have enough income to afford uh, to purchase a home. Uh, they don't have savings for down payment and closing costs. Um, however, they work every day, and they have a very low income wage. The issue here that we were experiencing is prior to the Reagan administration, our federal government actually built homes so that lower-income families could purchase and become homeowners. That was eliminated during that period. And subsequently, we we led to where we are today. And that's being the government not investing in homeownership, rather it's investing in rental housing. Rental housing actually costs four to five times more than homeownership opportunities. Just getting that word out there mm-hmm. and presenting that reality um, so that people will more understand. But the families that we work with, they do have, um, many of them have that issue of um, credit, have that issue of not having sufficient income to qualify. So we do have a number of programs and we do have a number of supporters 
some private, some public, that provide uh, down payment assistance that can be used by these lower income families. We work with them to get their credit score up to uh, what it needs to be in order to qualify for a mortgage. Um, and we educate them in terms of um, how to maintain that after they get it up there. And we work with them to find a home, and we also create those homes um, so that they can become homeowners. And right now our goal is 800, and we are just getting started, so we're just working on our first 12 right now. Oh, excellent. But, for, for listeners yeah, who are interested in do. for listeners who are interested in more information about the Portland Community Reinvestment Initiatives, uh, Inc., what's the best way to connect with you and begin the process of being better educated and perhaps um, looking forward toward the possibility of home ownership? They can come into our office. We're located at six three two nine Northeast MLK. They can call us on the telephone. They can visit our website, which is pcrihome.org, www.pcrihome.org, and there is information on our website as well. We make the announcements when we are going to be having orientation for those who are interested in homeownership, and we can go through the process and uh, help them determine whether or not they qualify and if there are situations that need to be addressed to make them qualify, then we also work with them one-on-one to explain uh, what that is and then work with them after that to help them attain that that level of uh, uh, maturity in terms of becoming qualified to purchase a home. And then we build a home that they can afford. Oh, it's it's just great. Well, Maxine, I am so grateful. I know you relocated to Portland in the uh, early 90s to help uh, from the Midwest to help uh, lead this organization and have an impact on our community. And I so I'm so grateful that you are continuing to serve here. And I appreciate the time that you've taken to help us better understand the work of the Portland Community Reinvestment Initiatives. We'll have to have another conversation in the future. That would be lovely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Georgine. Bye-bye. Bye. By the way, uh, we have a link to the website um, on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page or on at kpdq.com for more information, keeping in mind that June is National Home Ownership Month. And if you've been thinking about it, uh, this is an organization that can help you determine whether or not that's realistic. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be wrapping things up. <clears throat> You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Excuse me, our final segment for this afternoon. The Christian Post recently featured an article in which Ravi Zacharias and Francis Chan appeared uh, during a Q&A session at a church leaders conference in Georgia. It took place last month. And Francis Chan made a rather um, startling statement, which I suppose shouldn't be startling at all. He said the church needs to stop apologizing for what God says is right and wrong in our politically correct culture. Well, in a postmodern culture obsessed with feelings and political correctness, the church has to Stop apologizing for the way that God thinks and acts and what he says is right and wrong. He said during that conference, again, it was during a Q&A at the 2019 Church Leaders Conference. It was uh, 
held at the Zacharias Institute in Georgia. And Francis Chan explained that in today's culture, the pervasive mentality is that we're all fighting for our rights. And these are real things, real pain, real feelings that we feel, he said. And I love how the church has been so compassionate towards people. This has been a new move into this um, really trying to understand people, hear where they're coming from and so on. But amid the push to be inclusive and understanding, he said one of the most important passages for our generation is Isaiah 50. 5, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He says, I've read a couple of modern books where people will say, why would God do this? I wouldn't do that, he said. It's coming from this mindset where whether we, um, whether you know it or not, you believe your mind is the ultimate. And what God's saying is, I don't think like you. I read the Old Testament and so many times I go, I wouldn't have done that. And God says there's reason you wouldn't because uh, you don't think as I do. Well, the pastor warned that in its... Um, compassion for people. The church has lost this understanding that, yes, I feel you're hurt, but my biggest concern is you're not seeing the center of it all, and you're not seeing this being who is so far beyond you that uh, you have to um, answer to, and that's uh, bigger than the hurt that you've currently uh, faced, and uh, his thoughts are so far beyond ours. Anyway, putting it in the context uh, that God is not just a, um, a little G God who's very much like us and takes advice from us because his perspective is limited, but rather we need to uh, gain his perspective and recognize the limitations of our own. Also, Southern Baptists are meeting and sex abuse, the crisis within the church, has topped that agenda. The Southern Baptist Convention opened a national meeting on Tuesday. It's expected to be dominated by discussion of a large-scale sex abuse crisis. Delegates were expected to adopt new abuse prevention measures to consider a proposal making it easier to expel churches that mishandle abuse cases, holding them to a greater accountability. The Reverend J.D. Greer, president of the nation's largest Protestant domination, said the SBC faced a defining moment that would shape the church for generations to come. This is not a distraction from the mission, Greer said, of the fight against sex abuse. Protecting God's children is the mission of the church, end quote. Well, sex abuse already has a high-profile issue, or was in 2018, in the national meeting in Dallas, after which Greer formed an advisory group to draft recommendations on how to confront the problem. Well, pressure on the denomination has intensified in recent months, due in part to articles by the Houston Chronicle and San Antonio Express News, asserting that hundreds of Southern Baptist clergy and staff had been accused of sexual misconduct over the past 20 years, including dozens who returned to church duties while leaving more than 700 victims with little in a way of justice or apologies. Well, stung by the allegations, the uh, leadership have forwarded to the uh, delegates um, meeting in Birmingham a proposed amendment to the Constitution for the denomination, making clear that an individual church could be expelled for mishandling or covering up sex abuse cases. Again, the denomination holding individual churches accountable. The proposal also designates racism as grounds for expulsion as well. Another proposal calls for assigning the Southern Baptist Convention's Credentials Committee to field claims against churches with regard to sexual abuse and racial discrimination. Even before the meeting this week, some action had been taken on recommendations from uh, the study committee. For example, a nine-member team developed a training curriculum to be used by churches and seminaries to improve responses to abuse. 
The team includes a psychologist, a former prosecutor, a detective, and an attorney, an abuse survivor. And uh, this is the first woman to go public with charges against sports uh, Dr. Larry Nasser ahead of the prosecution that led to a lengthy prison sentence. Rachel uh, Din Hollander. Well, the study group also is considering new requirements for bracket, uh, background checks of church leaders, and it is assessing options for a database listing credibility of accused abusers, uh, though Baptist leaders say that process has been difficult because of legal issues. Uh, the creation of a database uh, overseen by an independent staff is one of the demands of a group of abuse survivors and other activists uh, who planned a protest rally outside of the convention center this evening. They're also going to urge the church, uh, which espouses all male leadership, to be more respectful of women's roles, a volatile topic that sparked online debate over whether women should preach to men. Well, ahead of the meeting, there was a surge of debate related to the Southern Baptist Convention's doctrine of complementarianism that calls for male leaders in the church and in the home. Particularly contentious is a widely observed uh, prohibition on women preaching in Southern Baptist churches and those uh, recently challenging the policy including include rather Beth Moore who is a prominent author and evangelist who runs a Houston based ministry for women um, uh, what uh, what I want to say to my own family of Southern Baptist, uh, Moore went on to say, our family is sick. We need help. Uh, she was speaking at a panel discussion Monday night. We have this built-in um, disesteem for women, and it's got to change. Well, the SBC says it has 14.8 million members in 2018, down from 192 or, or about uh, 192,000 from the previous year. And the meeting comes as U.S. Catholic bishops are also convening to address a widening sex abuse cra- uh, crisis within the Catholic Church, which is the largest denomination in the U.S. So this um, is going on uh, right now. You might want to say a prayer for the leaders who are making decisions about the future of the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as other uh, church leaders. Tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to spending some time with our friends at Union Gospel Mission. It's the summer of safety, and we're going to focus on the needs uh, primarily of women uh, who find themselves on the streets of the Portland area and how we can help them uh, to thrive and to flourish as uh, leaders of their families. So we'll talk with him about that on Wednesday. On Thursday, we'll talk with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, author of Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first-hand account of World War II. So looking forward to that conversation as well. want to thank James Blend for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.